All right, go ahead and open up Ezra chapter 9 tonight. You remember last week uh, when we were together, Ezra was gathering up close to 1,500 men to go back to Jerusalem. He had got his orders from the king to go back to ensure that the religious orders were being followed and that he would go back and, and make sure that the law that was given to Moses was being followed there in Jerusalem. <clears throat> uh, we know that they made it to Jerusalem because we see that they had counted the gold and the silver and had accountability of those things. But now Ezra, once he's arriving there and kind of giving a survey of what has been going on over the past, what, 60 years since the rubble boy brought his people back, 60 years since the rubble boy told the people of the land that they were not to be included in building the temple, that this was a work of God and his people, and that they weren't going to be mixed in with the pagans of the land. Ezra comes upon Jerusalem at this time, and we're going to see here that many of the people in Jerusalem are wanting to marry women from these pagan nations. And some of these who were marrying were priests and Levites who were going to marry these foreign <coughs> women or these pagan women. And uh, we know that they were not supposed to do that. They were not supposed to intermarry between the pagans and, the, and those who were the children of God. You know, we've got to change our evil ways. We've got to change our sinful ways. And as Ezra's coming in, he's seen these evil ways happening. Our Holy Father also disciplines those who like to follow in evil ways, especially us as believers when we start to go astray from what the Father has asked us to do. Whenever we know what's right and what's wrong, but we choose to do what's wrong, he will often, often discipline us. He doesn't want us to continue and return to our, our old manner of life or our old man uh, before we were saved. He wants us to continue to grow in the spirit, continue to walk and move forward with that. And as we get into looking into this, I want to just read through several scriptures that talks about this very point, that God doesn't want us to go back to a sinful nature or a sinful man, that he wants us to walk in righteousness and walk in the, in the uh, holiness that he gives us. So Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Often in our minds we think that we are doing the right things, that uh, we, we, we can get away with certain things, and we think that is right, but often if we're walking in the ways of sin, what does that equal? It equals death. Proverbs 12, 2 says, Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. So where is our heart? What is the motive of our heart when we do things? Psalms 36, 4 says, He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. A lot of people in this world do not despise evil. We see that in our nation today with the civil unrest. Uh, is as though they don't want God for they can get away with anything, even murder, as we have seen throughout the months. Proverbs 4.14 says, Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not proceed the way of evil men. Don't go along with those who are doing evil. Psalms 1.1 tells us this, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. 
We don't need to be unleavingly yoked with the unbeliever, with those who are running headfirst into sin and into evil. And we're going to see that today in our passage. So here in Ezra 9, we see Israel being beginning to slip back into the old evil ways. Because what's the point? What's the whole point in them being put into bondage? They didn't practice the Sabbath like the Lord wanted them to do. They were falling into idolatry, getting intermingled with those pagans that were around them. And now we see that they're starting to fall right back into the same patterns that brought them into bondage in the first place. That disobeying of God's law, that sinful nature that they had, bringing them right back into bondage again. And here is, they're in particular, they're talking about them marrying foreign wives or the wives of those who were living in the land. And specifically, this is brought to our attention in verses 1 and 2 and 11 and 12 as we're going to get into it. It was because of the false worship that God did not want them to marry these women. I'm sure if these women would have converted to worshiping God in the fullness of who he is, that marriage would have been with, upheld. But the fact that these women were going to bring these men into idolatry, into foreign worship was the main issue why God did not want this to happen. So let's go ahead and start in verse 1 of Ezra chapter 9. And it says, when these things were done, the leaders came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land. With respect to the abomination of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, Egyptians, and the Amorites. Now, they said that they weren't going to separate themselves from those of that foreign land. I mean, Deuteronomy 7 Verses 1 through 4 kind of tells you what the law is saying about them separating themselves and not to marry those of the foreign land. So in Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 1, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. <clears throat> and when your Lord, your God, delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. Did they do that? They didn't do that to all of them. They let some of them survive. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. So this is telling us, even in that we can look at this as an application for ourselves, that we should make no covenant with those who do evil. We should make no covenant with sin or the devil. That we should be walking uh, along the path in which the Lord is directing us to go. He says here, you should make no covenant with them, nor show, show mercy to them. We should show no mercy to sin whenever it comes our, our way. In verse 3 it says, nor shall you make marriage with marriages with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn uh, your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. What was one of the major problems that Solomon had? All the wisdom in the world he had, but he had a thing for foreign women. 
He had a thing for those, had a thing for the women that would follow these foreign gods, these pagan gods, and he would ultimately build places of worship to these foreign gods. And that was what took Solomon down, and that is what ended up splitting the nation of Israel into two separate kingdoms. So here we see in Deuteronomy, God telling them not to go with these foreign gods, not to go with these foreign women, but yet they did it. And Ezra was shocked and could not believe this. As we continue in verse 2, it says, For they had taken some of their daughters and wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers had been foremost in this trespass. So we, have, we see their leaders, the religious leaders and probably government leaders, deep into this, marrying these women from foreign lands. It says, so when I heard, that, I heard this thing, when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and my beard and sat down astonished. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. He was very much distraught on what had happened. Picture it. Ezra coming in after a, over a 900 plus mile journey from Babylon coming into the land, going into the, the temple, getting account for the treasures that were brought back with them. I'm pretty sure they were on a high at this point, coming into Jerusalem thinking, man, this is going to be great. We're going back to the promised land. We're going back to the city of God. We're going back to worship in the promised land. And then he walks in and finds this out. A report gets back to him that they're marrying these foreign women. That high was brought down to a low. And he's in shock at this, at this time, at the sin that they're involved in. When's the last time that sin has brought us to an all-time low? To where we see things on TV or we, we see things, maybe family members or even we ourselves get involved in. When has it sadness to the point where we want to pull out our beard hairs and our hair on our heads? When is the last time that has really brought us to that point and each of us I'm pretty sure is going to be on a different level of answering that question but when has sin really shocked us and surprised us to the point where we're wanting to do that to ourselves you know so Ezra was really worried about this and it was two reasons I'm going to look at at this moment why he was probably worried about the intermarriage and why it was such a big issue number one prophetically at this point, they knew that a Messiah was going to come at some point, that he, that he was going to deliver the people. And you see, in prophecy, the Messiah was going to come from the Jewish uh, lineage. And so if intermarriage kept happening, kept happening, that, that the Jewish people end up being deluded and then the Messiah couldn't come. It was one of the ploys of the devil to try and stop what Jesus was going to eventually come and do. And we think about that. Have you ever wondered how the Jewish people have survived for so long? For so long through the Holocaust, through the Roman uh, Empire, through Babylon, through Egypt, even to modern day, how they're able to keep themselves as a people and as a nation in their identity. Obviously, it's God at work taking care of his chosen people. And I know God's not done with them. He still has work to do with them. But they have kept their identity through all these years, thousands of years. 
And we read in the Bible of all the hardship they had. They should have been wiped out by now. I think any other nation or, or group of people would have already been wiped out if it wasn't for the hand of God. And we see the, the nation of Israel staying strong as a people even to this day. Because God's prophecies will come true. They're not going to be proven to be lies. So his hand was upon these people. Also, the intermarriage was of major concern, particularly for through it, God's people, God's people would inevitably start following these pagan customs. I've had conversations with people throughout my life that they would end up marrying someone and it ended up being a terror of a marriage because they were a believer and the other person was a non-believer. And they thought in their entire time that they would be able to change that person. Well, I'm going to marry him or her, and I'm, I'm going to make sure I'm going to be a good witness, and I'm going to change that person's heart. But that person's heart never had an intention of changing towards God to begin with. And we see the marriage would end up falling apart, and divorce would ultimately come from that because we should not be unevenly yoked with those we marry. Now, I know some people end up getting married. One ends up being saved. And, you know, they need to be a good witness. I don't believe they should divorce at that point. They need to be a good witness. But if you are a believer, you should not be marrying those who are unbelievers. You should be marrying within the faith to have that common bond together to where you're not unevenly yoked. And in 1 Corinthians 6.14, it tells us just that. It says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And I think this does not just have to do with marriage. I think that could be with any portion of our life, whether it's business, whether it's family members uh, that may be walking in in darkness, may be walking in sin. You know, yes, we want to be a witness to them. Yes, we want to make sure that, you know, they know about the love of Christ. But that doesn't mean that we go out and do the things they do. We have to separate ourselves from that, whatever it may be. And Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. So if we decide to willingly walk in that, that, un, that unyokedness with others, we're going to reap whatever is going to come from that. Whatever sin or evil or or discipline that we reap from it, we only do that to ourselves because we knew we should not be in those relationships. And the people here of Jerusalem knew they should not have been in those unequally yoked relationships with these pagan women or men. They knew they should not have been walking in that way. In verse 4, as we continue on, it says, Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgressions of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until evening sacrifice. So Ezra is really shocked by what he see he is seeing going on. He stays sitting until it's time for evening sacrifice. I think he had to sort through all of what he was seeing because this is, was not what he was expecting when he was to show up in Jerusalem. It appears that they, those who came from captivity, may not have even known about this law, maybe. Maybe they didn't realize they couldn't intermarry. Or maybe they thought the law didn't apply to them. I think a lot of Christians even think some 
some of the things in the Bible don't apply to them. They don't think that some of the, the commands that God gives applies to them, but they apply to all of us. And that's why it's so important to seek God's word, to find out what God has in his word, how we should walk with him, how we should commune with him. And many Christians don't do that. Many Christians don't want to open up their Bibles. They're good with what they get on Sunday. But they're missing out on so much. And I think because they don't get into the word to understand how God wants you to walk and to live and to love, they often walk in darkness. They often walk continuously in sin because they're not knowing what their father has in store for them. They're not wanting to know the standards in which God has given us as believers. And so they lose out on that and they're not walking according to God's will. So we see here Ezra was in a state of shock all day long. And we asked ourselves once again, when was the last time we were in shock? I think as Americans especially, I can't speak to the rest of the world, but I think we're desensitized to sin. I think we, we, we really are. We see so much of it on our movies. We hear so much of it in our music. We see so much of it on TV, on the phones we hold in our hands. We, we just have become so used to a, to a culture of sin that we often... I think, neglect the ways of God. And I think we take a lot of things that are simple within our life as, well, this is just everyday life. If we don't take those uh, sins into consideration, that we, we need to repent from, from, from those sins. We need to, once again, get into the word of God and understand what is sin and what is not and how that all works out. Because I think, once again, we're just desensitized to it. We see, we hear of, hear of murder on TV, we hear of rape, we hear of these things, and we just kind of think about it for a second and we move on. It doesn't affect us. And every sin that, that happens in this world to every person affects God. It affects his heart, you know? And I want to have that heart to where it, it saddens me when I see these things, but sadly I don't. I hear about it and I move on with the rest of my life. Not even, not even a second glance at it. And that saddens me that my heart is in that state because I want to have a heart after God to where I grieve whenever I hear about sin, even if it's not my own, that it saddens me to be able to, that it would drive me to want to pray for those who are living in these, in these states of sin. And sadly, I don't think the church is, is driven to that point anymore because we're so desensitized to sin. In verse uh, 5, as we continue, it says, At the evening sacrifice I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. When was the last time we fasted, truly fasted for our nation? I haven't. And really fasted for those who are, are, are without Christ, to see them come to Christ. And then it says here that he, that he had torn his garments and, and had his robe and he fell on his knees and spread his hands out to the Lord. And it goes on in verse 6, it says, And I said, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. He doesn't say, I am ashamed of these backsliders. I am ashamed of these Jews that have sinned against you. 
He doesn't point the finger at them and says, look what they have done. I am ashamed of them. He doesn't do that. He he includes himself. He goes, I am ashamed of ourselves. He doesn't point the finger. He realizes himself that he is a sinner. This is us as a body of Christ to not point the finger at everyone that has been doing things wrong that is within the body of Christ. We have our own faults we have to look at as well. We're no better than the next man or the next church. We have our own demons that we're battling with, our own sins that we struggle with. And so we should look at to God as a body of Christ and say, Lord, I am ashamed of the way we have been serving you. I am ashamed at the way we have been walking with you. And Ezra is doing that here. Lord, I am ashamed. We are ashamed of what we have done, the sin that we have committed before you. Romans 3.23 sums it up perfectly, I believe. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It didn't say just the Jews, but not Ezra has fallen short of, of the glory of God and all sin. It doesn't say, well, everyone else has fallen short of the glory, but Brandon. It says, no, it says all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Ezra, I believe, was recognizing this truth, that he may have been just as guilty of what was going on as those who was actually committing the act. Because maybe he didn't teach him when he first got there what was going on. But he realized that he was a sinful man as well. So we are all guilty of sin and we all fall short. Ezra believed and realized this fact. And he cried out to God, not just for himself, but for the entire nation. And he prayed a prayer of repentance to God for all of Israel. And I think whenever we do go to the Lord in prayer and we hit our knees and pray, we should pray for the entire church, asking the Lord to forgive the church, even our country, asking the Lord to forgive America for the sins that we have. And we got plenty of sins here in America. We are not perfect. And we need to get on our knees and, and intercede for our nation, intercede for the church here in America, intercede for the church globally, because the church itself has done some monstrous things over the years that it has been around here. And we need to ask the Lord for forgiveness in those areas. In verse 7, it says, Since the days of our fathers, to this day, we have been very guilty for our iniquities. We, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hands of kings of the lands, to the sword, to the captivity, to plunder, to humiliation, as it is this day. And we've read that in Chronicles and Kings. We've seen how they were delivered over to other nations because they decided to live in sin and not be obedient to what God had asked them to do. Not taking into consideration that what God was asking them to do was the best thing they could have done. Yet they wanted to feed their flesh. They wanted to feed their own comfort, to be in their own comfort zone, instead of follow what God was asking them to do. In verse 8 it says, And now for a little while grace has been shown from the Lord our God, and grace had been shown. They were able to go back to Jerusalem to build the temple, go back to Jerusalem to start the worship of a true and living God again. And God has given us grace in America for quite a few years, 244, if I'm not mistaken, 244 years as a nation. God has given us tons of grace. And I'm pretty sure you can look at your own individual life and see the grace that God has given you Throughout your time, no matter how old or young you are, God has shown us as believers his grace. 
And it goes on, it says, to leave us a remnant to escape. So once again, they go into captivity. God is still living, leaving a remnant of Jews to be able to establish his kingdom, to be able to establish the worship again. And I believe right now in America, there is a remnant of true believers. Because not everyone that says they're Christian is Christian. We all know that. We all know that, that, that Christian, the word Christian is thrown around very loosely here in America. But he has left a remnant of true believers that want to seek him. And so here he's saying that he has left a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. Talked about praying for revival. Boy, does America need revival. But it's going to start with us as individuals. Being revived by the Holy Spirit, that our walks would be on fire again for God. And that that fire that we catch from God, from the Holy Spirit, would be able to touch others and ignite them as well. To where it could spread like a wildfire for the glory of God. So here they're talking about the revival even in their bondage. It says, for we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the king of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. So the favor of God was on the people. And I believe the favor of God is still on us here in America as believers and now, O oh God, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanliness of the people of the land, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their impurities. Now, therefore, do not give your daughters as wives. And here we go, kind of repeating what Deuteronomy 7 was telling us. Do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as the inheritance to your children forever. He's saying don't even seek the peace and prosperity of those people. Basically, utterly destroy them because that's what he said in Deuteronomy that you were to go before these people and destroy them, eliminate them. And we need to eliminate those things in our lives that are hindering us in our walk. We need to eliminate the sins in our lives that, that stop us from being fully used by God. We need to yield to the, to the Spirit and not yield to our own flesh. Because if you continue to feed your flesh, that's going to be the stronger person that's going to rise up in you. We need to continue to feed our spirit and let that spirit rise up in us to where we can be conquerors over those sins that, that, that hinder our lives. Verse 13, it says, After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and have given us such deliverance as this. Could you read that? You, our God, have punished us less than what our iniquities deserve. That's the mercy of God. Because all of our sins, it says it deserves death, but he has chosen not to just kill us at this moment. 
He's chosen to not judge us to that point by giving us his son, giving us an opportunity to accept his son to become born-again believers and to follow him. Because ultimately, he should have offed us. (laughs) But he's chosen not to do that. Verse 14, it says, Should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people, committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant of survivors? That's some pretty harsh talk. You know, God should have consumed us. He should have burned us up from, from the get-go. But he's, that wasn't his plan. That wasn't the route he was going to take. He was going to offer a way out. He was going to offer a way to be forgiven of these sins that we fall into. In verse 15, it says, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. So we see Ezra going to the Lord in prayer. We see that he had fasted that day before the Lord as he came to this. We see a remnant left by God, that God's mercy and grace still stands. And in this powerful prayer, we see here a broken priest. We see neither pride nor empty promises to do better. How many of us, when we pray, Lord, if you just forgive me of this and I'm going to do better next time. And how many know that's an empty promise? Because we'll never keep that. Somewhere down the line, we're going we're to fail. Lord, if you, if you just do this for me, I promise you I'm going to go do this. And often, we fail at that promise. Now, maybe some promises are kept. Maybe, maybe some are kept. Some people do keep them, but very often... We fail at those empty promises, and we don't see him making an empty promise here. He's very much humbling himself before God. We see him thanking God for his care and adoration and thanking him for his character. We see him confess the sins and acknowledge of the undeserved mercy that God has given us. And though it, and though it all, and through it all, we see the beauty of humility. And that's why we need to come to the Lord with humility. We need to be humble before the Lord when we come to him, not boasting about things. Understanding our position in God, understanding who we are and what he has done. More importantly, what he has done. And I think if we really got a grasp on what he has done for us, the humility part wouldn't be a problem because he's done so much. So we see here that God is full of mercy. We see that his righteousness here is from generation to generation. We see here that his mercy is everlasting. And I thank God for that mercy. And it says at the end that that no one was able to to stand before God because of everything they'd done. But Jesus was able to stand before God for us as his blood was shed and his mercy and his grace was bestowed on us. He's the one who stands in that gap for us. You know, he's the one who brings that forgiveness of sins. And once we grasp that, I think that humility will definitely kick in. All right. Father, we thank you for this message tonight, Father. We 
ask, Lord, that we can, we ask for your power, Father God. We ask for your strength. We ask for your mercy and your grace to be upon us, that we can walk not unevenly yoked, Father God, but yoked evenly with you, Father God, and that we would form relationships with those who are are like-minded, Father God, that we can bring you glory, Father, and that we would not walk with those of this world, Father, and that we would be separated, that we would be called apart from them, Father God, to do your bidding and to do your will, Father God, in this world we live in, and that we would humble ourselves before you, Lord, and realize that we are all sinners in need of your mercy and your grace, Father, and that we would intercede for those who are walking contrary to your word and your way, Father God, and that we can be a, a light and a salt, Father God, for this world. And that those who are lost, Father God, will be able to come home to you, Lord, as we intercede for them in prayer. Realizing that we are no better than them, Father God, but we are forgiven, Lord, and that they are in need of forgiveness as well. We ask for your blessing tonight, Lord. Uh, we pray for those over on the east of us, the hurricane, Lord, that you would protect those there. Uh, and help them through it. We give all glory and honor to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.